You're listening to The Whole Church Podcast. Our efforts to educate and unite the church are made possible thanks to our sponsors on Patreon. Please consider joining them for $3 a month at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast, where you'll get extra bonus content like our pet peeves segment, where we ask our guests about their pets and their peeves with the church. Matthew 24 verses 4 through 14 in the Christian Standard Bible read, Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Here Jesus is recording telling us about the end times. He states there will be false teachers and lots of pain in the earth. He also states that these are just growing pains and that the ones who endured will be saved. Nathan, what does it take to keep our love from going cold as Jesus warns could happen? Well, one of the things I love about this passage is that there are times I can fool myself into thinking that the relationship between false teaching and ethical dispositions is a modern or at least a recent uh, invention, but uh, there it is right there. I mean, in in the oldest of Christian texts, uh, there is a measure of false teaching uh, that is related not to apostasy, uh, as sometimes I think about it as a verbal confession of uh, deviant teachings, but rather that love grows cold. So, I mean, you know, one of the things to remember is that uh, this idea really is an ancient one. Now, as far as, you know, how we can keep that from happening, you know, I mean, uh, th- this is where I'm going to sound more ancient than modern. Uh, it is that teaching really does matter. Uh, so, I mean, you know, what leads to this coldness of love uh, is not an overemphasis on dogma, as sometimes one hears in certain circles, uh, but false dogma. So, I mean, you know, it's it's something that's very uncomfortable for me because I'd rather say, you know, what you believe doesn't matter that much. Uh, but what seems to be going on in this passage is that uh, when what you believe goes sideways, uh, so does your love. And, you know, that relationship between teaching and love, um, you know, like I said, uh, it's not what I expected. And honestly, most of the time, when I read over this passage, it's a relationship that I don't really focus on, but uh, it's something certainly that uh, challenges the assumptions that I bring to the life of the Spirit. Hmm. Man, that is a challenge. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. It could be your favorite Church Unity Podcast. If it is, We thank you. I am joined by a host of mostly hosts of other podcasts. (laughs) We have a host. If you haven't been able to tell yet, this is one of our roundtable episodes. So we get people from different traditions and backgrounds together in the church to discuss a single issue and come at it from several different angles. 
Today, we might be joined by more later. For now, we have Joe Day, who is a pastor, as well as a host of several other podcasts, including um, Buddy Walk with Jesus, one of my favorite disciple and Bible podcasts, and Shell Shocked, definitely my favorite Ninja Turtles podcast. <laughs> and we have Nathan Gilmore, who is the host of the Christian Humanist Project. I'm trying to remember. It's project and not podcast, Christian right? Christian Humanist Profiles. Profiles. Okay. But I, I, like was a project. Keyword. I like project. <laughs> both. They're both. Look it up. Um, Christian Ashley is also with us. He is a seminary student at um, Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, as well as a host of Let Nothing Move You podcast and one of the co-hosts of Systematic Geekology. And we're all here for one purpose, and that is to be asked questions from the greatest podcaster to ever podcast a podcast, the one and only TJ Tiberius Juan Blackwell. Welcome to your show. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Today yeah. we will be discussing cults and the church and how the church is different than a cult. Um, kind of a big question. I don't know a ton about this topic, so hopefully our co-hosts do. This was brought up during our last roundtable, primarily by Brandon Knight, who was not here, but is going to get a special shout out. Go listen to his podcast, My Seminary Life, and know that we will all be guessing things that he would have said or what he did say in the last episode because we don't fully remember. Brandon, we love you. We hope we represent you well. <laughs> right. And if you're not plugged in yet, uh, check out the Amazon Ministries Podcast Network. Uh, it's great. It's convenient. You get a feed with our show and a bunch of shows like it. Uh, you can also get on Discord and talk to us. Josh loves to talk. I'll do it sometimes. Uh, and if you're listening on the AMP Network YouTube channel, hit like and subscribe, please. It's super helpful. It's the best way to share the show. Yeah, that's true. Leave a comment. And we love to dupe the algorithm. That's true. Comments do so much on YouTube. Like, it's so weird compared to other things, but I, I won't go there just now. Yeah, on YouTube, that it makes a huge difference for some reason. Today, before we do anything else, we're going to get together and do one of my favorite spiritual practices. We're going to pray on air or, or actually, we're going to do something that engenders a lot of unity, which is silliness. Silliness. We'll pray later. But for now, we will be silly in the name of the Lord as I ask a silly question. And... TJ and I will answer first, give you guys time to think about it. Who is closer to a cult-like mentality, the Jedi Council, the High Elves of Arda, or Middle-earth, as some may know it, or just specifically Loki in Marvel's Avengers, the movie? Um, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go first. I'm going to say Loki specifically just because he has that thing where he's like, people were made to worship, so naturally they must want to worship me. Although there is an argument that he's actually a god, which might, you know, keep him from technically having cult mind. You know, like, I don't I don't know how that works, but I, I'm still going to go with Loki because that just was just so much. It's too extra, man. Yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely going to go with the Jedi, not even the council mm -hmm. specifically, all of them at, at mm -hmm. the stage that we knew them best, mm -hmm. at least, you know, the prequels. And why? They're a cult. All right. Just straight up. <laughs> Fair. I mean, that's what, like, the back half of the Clone Wars is about. It's like, hey, you're doing this wrong. Revan did it too in, like, the Old Republic. It's like, hey, y'all are not doing the right thing. I'm not going to get into it, but it's the it's the Jedi. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Christian. Christian. <laughs> I will elaborate on what TJ said, because that is also my answer, in that the Jedi Order has lost its way, especially during the prequel era. 
of its task to protect the Republic, but has grown so inwardly focused and denying the people around them how many, uh, I mean, there's slave trades going across the entire galaxy. They're not doing anything about it. You can argue there's only so many of them. What can they do? But at the end of the day, they're more about protecting themselves than they are actually doing their job and focusing on what they think matters versus what actually matters and denying their emotions and denying their instincts for the sake of looking good to the galaxy. All right. Real shame there. Yeah. So, uh, Nathan. Uh, I'm I'm going to limit it to the 2012 Avengers because that's what the uh, question posed and say Loki specifically because uh, that iteration of Loki Uh, His main concern is to rescue people and specifically to rescue them from freedom. So the idea is that uh, people are incapable of living a good life on their own. And so therefore their freedom itself is the problem. And, you know, that is the kind of behavior that generally gets called cult in the modern sense. All right, Joe, what do you think? Bring us home. I'm going with the Jedi. Essentially, they took a philosophy and manipulated it to their own means and basically said if you don't think like us you are fundamentally incorrect right right mm. they also brainwashed kids and uh, you know hold on yeah literally brainwashed kids What's going on there <laughs> i just wanted to, to do my argument why it's not the high elves because they have all the same problems as the Jedi Council, but with the really big thing of they accept people who rebel within their own order, Jedi's tend not to like to do that. It's my argument why it's not the High Elves. Yeah. And depending on how you interpret Tolkien's writings, technically an unfallen race, so kind of hard to have a cult in that regard. I don't know how the metaphysics of that works, but yeah. We'll have to debate that on our Lord of the Rings podcast one day. So, for the not silly part of the show, uh, the rest of it, uh, Brandon Knight and Nathan Gilmore both brought up this topic in the last roundtable when we were discussing how the church should treat other religions. Uh, We mentioned that there is a cult around Christian nationalism that is probably more dangerous than learning about other religions. Uh, Nathan, do you think you could catch everyone up on what we were talking about last time? Uh, yeah, I mean, for the part that I contributed, uh, when we were talking about uh, other religions, one of the concerns that we were, uh, you know, exploring is the danger of syncretism. And one of the points that I made is that in North American, you know, yeah, I'm going to say North American Christian context, uh, you know, the big danger of syncretism comes less from uh, Santeria or Cadomble or you know, some of the things that people tend to point to when it comes to syncretism and the bigger danger of syncretism, I argued, and I still think that this is the case, uh, is a syncretism of a, of Christian practices and a religion called America. So, I mean, you know, for instance, people who are very concerned about Santeria and Catomble, uh, sometimes don't even blink when there is a, an American flag right behind the communion table. Uh, they don't have any concern with, Memorial Day and Veterans Day services that blend rhetoric of salvation uh, with rhetoric of gratitude towards military personnel, Uh, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I think that uh, if an anthropologist, uh, you know, I won't even say from Mars, that's usually my 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 fictional origin of the anthropologist. But if an anthropologist, you know, from the future, let's call it that, 
uh, were to look at, you know, North American Christianity, uh, the syncretism that anthropologists would find uh, would be a syncretism not of, um, you know, West African uh, animism and Christianity, but rather with nationalism and Christianity. Mm-hmm. Joe, you'd like to... Yeah, I'd like to jump in um, be, and, and echo some of the things that Nathan's saying. Um, as somebody who, before coming to Christianity, um, practiced a cult, um, a, a kind of a hodgepodge in certain regards. It wasn't like one specific um, belief set. I can tell you that almost universally, when I hear somebody make a comment about um, pagan practices of of and that tends to be the catch all phrase that gets used for anything that falls into that category is it's pagan. Um, it is either being afraid of the Hollywoodized version of it or just not just not having a firm understanding of what the actual practice of it is. Now, I'm not sitting here um, espousing the virtues of that belief set. But I'm simply stating that the version that gets most commonly spoken out about isn't really even actually the thing that it actually is. And some of these things that that people are so afraid of are belief sets that have kind of died off by uh, by and large, or just like I said, aren't what they seem. And the while there are uh, isolated examples of things that if you if you drill down into the origins of a particular practice you may be able to say well hey that sounds a lot like x and that x could be something from um witchcraft or some kind of um specific pr- belief set or practice that worship is that worships some kind of deity or deity structure outside of God. The the frequency in which that happens, or at least the frequency in which that is accepted, is is so few and far between in comparison to the one A and one B, and depending on where you're at, depends on which one's A and which one's B of the association of the cross and the American flag and. Mm. Yeah. When even down to something as simple as right, we, we're in we're in summer, we're in vacation Bible school season, right? And we it's not uncommon to have the kids do some kind of um, prayer or Christian pledge, but then automatically followed up with a pledge of allegiance. Well, wait a minute. Mm. Which one are you? Which one are you pledging your allegiance to? And that's that's a conversation in and of itself that I'm not necessarily trying to get into. Can Christians do the pledge of allegiance or anything like that? I think that that is asking all of the wrong questions when it comes to this topic. But I think if we allow for the uncomfortable conversation to start to take place, then very quickly you realize that there is a difference between a Christocentric worldview and a nationalistic worldview and a difference that does not allow for those two things to exist at the same time. Yeah. And that all goes for the occult and cults. 
So all that's correct. Um, and I'm, I, I want to throw in there that it's not bad to like your country. Like that's not the issue. There's a difference between being patriotic and being nationalist. That's a discussion for a different kind of podcast, not a yeah. Christian podcast, but know that there is a difference. Um, personally, I don't think I'm either. I kind of like, we have another thing that's another podcast, a systematic ecology I mentioned that we do like our favorite fandoms. I feel like I'm more of a fan of American history than I, than I am like a lover of it or anything. I'm just like, it's just fun to learn about. It's so weird. Uh, right. Yeah. And, and I mean, one thing that I would recommend to listeners is, you know, the, the value judgments between nationalism, patriotism, between, uh, you know, America worship and, you know, uh, whatever the counterpart to that is, we can get to those. But I mean, one of the things I always recommend is attend to the concrete practices. Uh, you know, I mean, when you do ritual things, when you say ritual words, uh, where are they directed? Right. I mean, you know, um, and, you know, one of the one of the questions I often pose is, uh, do the words of the Pledge of Allegiance come more readily to your lips or do the words of the Nicene Creed come more readily to your lips? I mean, you know, if one of them comes more readily than the other, there's a possibility there. And again, I'm not going to, you know, come to dogmatic conclusions, but there's a possibility that one of them is forming your soul more than the other is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 So 18 and a half minutes in. Let's start this. Nathan, <laughs> I'm going to let you start this one off because uh, you were already speaking and because you were a professor of religion. Um, we wanted to ask you specifically, how would you define what a cult is? Yeah, so this is going to take a few minutes, but I'll try to be relatively quick. Um, I'm a lot better with the history of words than I am with the definitions of words, but I'll get to the definition in the course of the history. So the Latin word cultus, which is our root word, uh, in the old text tends to refer to any kind of human endeavor that doesn't stay alive if people don't tend to it. So from this, we get words like agriculture, we get words like uh, cultivate, we get words like culture. Uh, and, you know, the, the common thread between all these and, you know, the, the ancient writers use it, you know, I mean, pretty flexibly. The common thread is that if you leave it alone, it doesn't grow back on its own. Right. So, I mean, you know, food crops you have to have farmers, uh, religions, you have to have priests. Uh, and I won't even say religions cause that's not an ancient concept. Temples, you gotta have priests. Okay. Uh, likewise, if you want to have a literary culture, you gotta have poets and so on and so forth. Right. So the common thread is it's something that goes away if it is neglected. And that really, I mean, that flexibility of the term persists all the way through, uh, you know, the first millennium or so of the Christian era, and actually more than that, because, I mean, it's really only within the most recent 250 years that historians start to use the word cult uh, to refer to specifically those endeavors that are directed towards superhuman beings, right? So, I mean, you know, it could be something like temple sacrifice. It could be uh, the creeds of a church. Uh, it could be the practices of a uh, philosophical school. Uh, it could be the meditation of Buddhists, but all of those things, you know, become cult. And it doesn't have the modern connotation of being a fringe element, uh, but it often has the uh, the connotation of being different from us. So, for instance, they will talk about the Roman emperor cult or the Egyptian pharaoh cult, uh, but they'll tend not to talk about, for instance, 
uh, the cult of uh, Renaissance Italy. Okay, they'll call that the theology or the church or, you know, one of those terms. Now, Mm -hmm. why is this history important? Because in the most recent 150 years, so we're talking about roughly speaking the late 1800s, social scientists start to use the term cult as a counterpart and as a distinctive from church or from religion. And, you know, the formal definitions, you know, vary from writer to writer. Uh, But a couple characteristics that, you know, are pretty consistent across those definitions are deviance and excessiveness. So deviance, uh, we get, you know, confessions that are different, beliefs that are different, practices that are different, social relations that are different, right? I mean, you know, uh, if people start to marry and give in marriage in ways that are different, that's a sure way to get called a cult, okay? Uh, And on the excessive side, a lot of times this is in terms of the authority of a central leader figure. That's often one of the things that we point to when we call something a cult, but it can also be uh, excessive demands of members. Now, I mean, one of the, you know, intellectual problems here that arises uh, is that both of those are relative terms. And that's not to say that, you know, if you use those terms, nothing matters and you can be whatever you want, but they are relative to a contingent social norm. So deviant Uh, raises the question, deviating from what? And excessive uh, raises the question, excessive compared to what? Okay. Now, a couple Mm -hmm. one one more historical note, and then I'll I'll actually attempt a, um, you know, a landing. Um, After World War II, and this is is fascinating to me, um, anthropologists and philosophers start to use the term cult uh, to refer to matters that in modern terms are political rather than religious. So they will talk about the cult of Italian fascism. They'll talk about the emperor cult of Imperial Japan and so on and so forth. Now the, the joke that, you know, some of these writers don't seem to get is that that distinction is utterly meaningless in the ancient meaning of the word cult. Uh, So what they are doing is they're basically returning to the old meaning (laughs) because often the old meaning is better. Right now in the 1980s, Um, And then this is where, I mean, uh, we kind of get into, you know, a lot of the modern uses of cult. Um, We get a a linguistic uh, blend of the cult word and the occult word. And they sound like they should be related to each other, but they're not. Uh, Cult means anything that goes away if you don't tend to it. Occult means dark. Uh, And so occult, you know, in 19th century horror fiction simply means things that are scary because they happen where you can't see them. And that gets mixed with the idea of cult in the sociological sense, a fringe religious group. And so what you get is, you know, people who do religious things in the dark, so to speak, uh, they become cults and they become part of the occult. And that's the kind of things that, you know, Joe was, was uh, referring to before. It doesn't deny the reality of these things, but it does say that they do have certain, sociological, certain anthropological, certain, uh, you know, social continuities. So I want to say two things. This is my landing that I promised. Um, (laughs) Truth number one, and I always love, you know, pairing up truths that shouldn't both be true, but they in fact are. Um, Truth number one is the term cult is always tied up with cultural expectations, power relations, all of those sorts of things. And truth number two is, Uh, it really does do certain kinds of intellectual work to call something a cult 
uh, can be right or wrong. It's not a completely relativistic term. Uh, you know, you really can talk about whether something is or is not a cult. Uh, just, you know, be careful about how much you absolutize it because the term cult uh, is a moving target. Hmm. All right. Brought that around pretty well, I think. Uh, yeah. So does does anybody have any pushback to that definition or something that they would like to add? Come fight me. It's <laughs> something I would like to add, like in a definition, because I'm spot on. Well done, uh, Dr. Gilmore. <laughs> I mean, clearly, you know what you're doing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, one thing for cults, one tendency some of them have is a tendency to get isolated from other people to control the group within to not make sure that they can see the news anymore. They stay away from their families and that way they a leader or a group of leaders has that total control over that person to where they can't go out into the world anymore. And all they hear is the propaganda of the cult itself. So that's something I would add. Yeah. I am. Um, one thing that's always fascinates me when I hear other people talk about cults, which I don't listen to a lot of, like I said, I don't know a ton about cult stuff. It's always so weird to me. how like, sometimes the definition team tends to hinge on this, like the fringe aspect, which always threw me off whenever you make it about fringe and leaders, because that means a uh, Christianity started as a cult. Buddhism started as, like most religions started as a cult. If that's what you're going to define it as, and that just feels icky because we tend to use cult as a bad word. <laughs> and then uh, the exclusionary one is the other definition I hear a lot of. And then some people like to use that to be like, so the Catholic Church counts. And I'm like, OK, but that seems like it definitely should not count. <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, famously during the Clinton years, and I, I thought about looking this up, but I was driving at the time and I forgot to do it when I got out of the car. Uh, so, yeah, sometime during the Clinton years. Uh, I believe the Department of Justice, but I didn't, like I said, I forgot to research it. So I'm, I'm going off of distant memory here. Um, but I believe the Department of Justice, you know, issued a public memo about the rise of cults in the U.S., largely in the wake of the Branch Davidians in Texas and, you know, those kinds of groups. And infamously, uh, their list of criteria for a cult described most evangelical Protestant churches. It was things like, you know, a belief that, you know, people of your tradition are going to heaven and other people aren't uh, a tendency to gather together with great frequency, you know, shared meals, yeah. shared gathering spaces. And it's like, yeah, somewhat like y'all should have invited a Baptist preacher to come in this little circle because you, <laughs> you, you fell and dropped the ball here. <laughs> yeah. 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 But we also don't want to like just define it so it doesn't include our groups, because that's like kind of a dishonest way of evaluating. Yourself. Although historically, but, yeah. that has tended to be one of the features of cult is that it is a like I said, it is a deviant group, which yeah. raises the question uh, deviant from what? And sometimes mm -hmm. that is deviant from a sort of cultural Protestantism. Right. So that I mean, there are times mm -hmm. and places in America where Roman Catholics do con constitute a cult in that sense. Right. And, you know, likewise, uh, when nationalism is on the table, right? Um, and, you know, to move out of the American context, you know, I mean, something like Falun Gong in China often gets called a cult uh, because it, it makes demands on its members that are excessive according to the Chinese state. And so, again, you know, I mean, uh, one of the things that makes this tricky, and I realize I, I'm I, I, I kind of laugh, Josh, when the, the notes asked me to give a definition for something, because I'm a lot better that, at finding a definition and breaking it than I am at building my own. But, uh, you know, 
uh, one of the things about cult status uh, is that it always stands relative to some kind of dominant tradition, whether that be a state, whether that be a sort of cultural Protestantism, whether it be something else, right? So, I mean, something that is a cult in one historical moment won't be in another historical moment, which, once again, doesn't mean that cult doesn't mean anything. What it does mean is that we always have to attend to the history. Right. Mm. So maybe not treat it as exclusively a bad word. <laughs> well, I mean, understand that. Well, and, and now I'm going to put on my rhetoric professor hat. It is a bad word, and we should attend to the reasons why it is bad. And, you know, mm-hmm. two of the reasons are that, I mean, we ha- we get uncomfortable and here I'm, I'm, I'm being more universal than I, re- than I usually am. Uh, but we human beings get uncomfortable when we see our neighbors as excessive and we get uncomfortable when we see our neighbors as deviant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, again, that doesn't mean that every kind of excessive or deviant thing is a good thing, not by any means. But it does mean that something can be simply deviant or simply excessive. And, you know, as human beings, we're going to tend to view that as a negative thing. Right. Joe. And that's why it's important to understand the nuance of the belief system that originated the cult-like behavior. Because whenever you look at these major, the, the, the major names, right? That when you think of cults, you think, these are the people. And unfortunately, people have the, a lot of these figures that were the, the genesis points for these cults are considered to be um, the abscesses of society. These are the ones that just um, were, were genetic hiccups and, and, you know, every society has them from time to time. But when you look at, so I'll take somebody like Manson, you you have somebody like Manson, incredibly charismatic and incredibly well spoken. Yeah, some of his some of the finer points of what he was he was uh, speaking about were, um, might I say, uh, wackadoo. But you might. <laughs> it, it's there's still there, there's still um, legitimate aspect to. His skill as a leader and his skill as a speaker and the ideas behind the base level of what he was talking about are are some of the same baseline stuff that are used by some religious practices or different things like that. You take – any of the any of the Christian based ones, and, and I'm glad that this came up. That um, I, I too remember back in the 90s when when basically Christian American Christianity was called a cult by and large. Most most practices were were called a cult, um, a cult, not o cult. But that when when you look at the sum total of what it is that they're preaching what it is that their message is is contains that's where you can start to draw those lines of is this is this problematic in comparison to what we the 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 four of us on this episode would submit to as the five of us that um are uh yeah 
yeah, five. Anyway, I can count. Um, but uh, this that's that's what what we would submit to as Christianity, right? As like a base level. You know, we've talked about this before on previous roundtables. If we try hard enough, we'll we'll figure out differences in mm-hmm. our doctrine uh, or the the specifics. But we submit to a certain base level. So when you look from the outside in and don't take that nuance that's where it's easy to either count it as fringe or count a cast a giant wide net that that allows for all of these different practices to all get lumped in as cult-like behavior and that it's not until you really start to unpack the subtleties of the actual messaging that you start to go from, hey, is this a difference in what the the specifics of what we believe? Is this something that we just don't see eye to eye on? Or is this a variant or deviation of a base religious belief that you could then turn into um, you could call a cult or a cult-like behavior? Josh, you wanted to? Yeah, just adding on to that um, and going back to what Christian said, I think that exclusionary thing is a key part when we're talking about what a cult is, all the other stuff included. But when I see churches where the leadership doesn't agree on everything, to me, that's a big green light of, hey, that's a healthy environment. Whereas when I see a leader disagree and all of a sudden they're excommunicated, whether, you know, officially or unofficially, you know, there's a lot of the, they're not excommunicated, but we're going to accuse their family of stuff or we're going to like really cut their check or cut their, you know, like, yeah, you're still excommunicating them, even if you're not using that term. That's when it's a red flag of this church might even be a cult based on that kind of mentality. So that's one thing that I really look for. Right. And I mean, at the risk of sounding like Joe, because I know Joe worries when I sound like him because he and I are supposed to disagree. But, um, you know, I mean, one of the things that I would recommend is use verbs when you're describing a community. Uh, Don't get so concerned about is this a religion or is this a cult? But, for instance, if all the young women are married to one middle aged man, then focus on, okay. That is a bad social relation, and these are the reasons that's a bad social relation. So, I mean, you know, uh, to make the to spend all of our time, I'll put it this way: on is this a cult or is it not? Uh, I think is missing, you know, conversations that potentially could be a lot more important. I mean, Joe, I am I am I talking like Joe here? Yeah, I uh, so I'll piggyback right off of that because I got a split here in a minute. So I wanted to kind of give a final thesis a little bit to this statement or to this uh, to this topic. Um, I'm right there with Nathan. I think that uh, oftentimes um, we get lost in asking the wrong questions. Um, I think for Christians, this kind of goes this is in the same ballpark of is it heresy? And asking that question versus um, trying to unpack what the differences are. What are these? If if you are fundamentally um, uncomfortable enough to question whether or not some subsect 
of Christianity or some belief system or some practice system is a cult, then start to take the time to unpack those thoughts, unpack what got you to that conclusion. Because in unpacking that and reasoning your way through it, that's how you're going to come to some kind of reasonable conclusion, some kind of definitive statement. And it also will allow for you to take the time to consider the complexities of the situation because if you allow for the for that time to consider the complexities of the situation then that also allows for the opportunity to not just go around with your sack of stones and you don't like something and so you just start lobbing stones and as somebody who in my tenure as a Christian has been better at pitching than other times. Uh, it's not, it doesn't do any good. It doesn't do any good to sit there and, and to just cast stones, reason through things, come to a conclusion. If there's a problem, see to the problem really, but there's nothing wrong with, with that extent of it. And if you come to the conclusion that, well, wait a minute, if I go through a, B, C, D, and I find that this is a toxic environment, this is problematic, or this is a cult, cult-like situation, yeah, turn, walk the other way, go. Like, separate yourself from that situation, absolutely. But be willing to ask those questions, especially if you are unsure of what exactly you're seeing, and especially if what you're seeing has roots in something that you... Mm. Good word. Good Thanks word. for joining us, Joe. <laughs> and, and you know, now that Joe can't fight back, you know, I'll just add to that, uh, you know, um, <laughs> you know, th- this is where, you know, again, you know, to turn away from or I mean, to turn towards something a little bit more specific, you know, namely money. Right. You know, I mean, there are going to be some kinds of communities that are just so reticent to ask people to contribute to a common fund that they dry up. Right. Uh, You know, Ryan Burge has talked about this phenomenon a great deal recently on, you know, homebrew Christianity. Right. Um, And then there are, you know, communities that basically say that, you know, if you do not contribute uh, X number of dollars, then you cannot have access to the superhuman. Right. In the ways that people can if they do contribute X number of dollars or X percentage of their income or whatever. And then there are, you know, a third, there's at least three different kinds, right? There's probably 17 or 18, but, you know, but there's a third kind that I can think of right now that says, you know, providing fun, providing your income for this common fund will do you spiritual good. And I'm going to give you reasons why it will do this in spiritual terms, in theological terms, so on and so forth, right? Now, I'd say that, you know, uh, the first and the third are much less dangerous, I'd say that the first and the second don't do nearly as much good spiritually. And, you know, when I do those evaluations, none of them has very much to do with, is this a cult or not? Right. It has to do with, I mean, how does this community Mm -hmm. relate to the income of the members of said community? Yeah. 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 I feel like that's, to roll it back a little bit, is one of the problems that can arise with a cult or that causes a cult to arise is when you get somebody who mentally feels outcast, but in reality is such a strong charismatic figure that they can convince, you know, 80 ish people to devote their life to him and 
go die for him. Because that's insane. 80 people to move to a ranch and fight the government for three months? That's wild. Man. Yeah. Right, right. That's a different kind I mean, of human. Uh, uh, an entire church that was once known for its social justice and racial equality, then moving all the way to South America and uh, ending in a mutual suicide. Uh, yep. as what the, the most the famous temple. guy from my church tradition. Thanks, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I got to send a couple jabs to Pentecostal way. Good fun. You're but, outnumbered, Christian. <laughs> I, I'm well aware of that. Yeah. So have you, have any of you encountered uh, any groups that give, have given you a, like a cult-like vibe or the heebie-jeebies? Christian, you wanted to say something else? Yeah, absolutely. Well, to this, to, the, okay, to your question. Cool, cool. cool. Yeah. Uh, I have more... Of a more academic one, in a sense, to start, and then I'll go with one that's actually I have talked to these people in real life. Uh, the The first one I'll start with was actually uh, the first time I ever heard of Mithras. Now, to those of you who don't know what that is, Mithras was a god in my one of my favorite religions to pronounce, Zoroastrianism. Uh, and there are qualities of Mithras that you can parallel to Jesus. And at the time of uh, Christianity's founding, there were these things known as mystery cults and mystery religions. And basically their premise was this exclusive group knows these things. No one else talks about it outside of it. No mm -hmm. one talks uh, about fight club outside of fight club that sense. And what we have that survived, uh, he was born on December 25th. Uh, there's a legend of him resurrecting and stuff like that. And the first time it was brought up to me academically was, hey, there was this cult around the time of Christianity. They believe some of the same things. Why are you so much better than them? And that took a lot of wrestling. I'm not going to answer that question here because there's plenty of things to counteract it. But, yeah, that's something I had to struggle with. So I would ask you all, if you have the chance, uh, listeners, to research that and see, like, what this is about. Like, why is this different to Christianity? Why is Christianity right and Mithraism is wrong? So that'd be one. And one of their favorite songs was There's Power in the Blood of the Bull. <laughs> <laughs> then the one I actually physically encountered would be the World Mission Society Church of God. Now, for those who are unaware of this, it's a very uh, explosive uh, cultic group from comes out of South Korea where they had two of their founders were essentially Jesus in the flesh in their view and Mother God. Now, me, semi-sheltered, college student on campus my uh, me, junior or senior year encounters these people for the first time and they start talking about mother god those two words have never once been brought to my attention before that moment in time but good thing is we did our group there we had our bibles together we started talking with them stuff like that but it really intrigued me so i did more research on them and i found they are some of the most aggressive evangelists in the world like i'm talking they uh, single out women who are walking alone and corner them and stuff like this. And it, it really got me. I mean, if I may say so, it got me pissed off to the point where my idea of solving the issue was to make a PowerPoint for my church and letting them know, you know, in righteousness, what, uh, who these people were, what they were about. So they knew because guess what? We kept seeing them there because they kept finding people who were lonely, who, had no one in their lives to look after them. And they brought them into the fold and gave them something to believe in. And that is terrifying because that's what cults can do is give a sense of purpose to someone who has nothing. Mm. Yeah. Um, the ones that I were going to throw out 
Man, I just feel like you had so much more to say. I'm just going to just do like the quick. Um, hey, I have actually gone to one of the, which is funny. It's a denomination I agree with a lot of. I like these people, so I'm not going to do any names. I'm just going to say, Christian, it's not people you know. But okay. it was a um, one of those homes where a lot of the college students interacted with the faith community, had their own home together. And I visited once. And just the way they greeted, it was like the house itself was like, not a church is in like a home church, but it's a church is in like, I felt like I just walked into a really formal church service and that's their living area. And that gave me the heebie-jeebies. Um, also, you know, I, I'm sure some of Brandon's recommendations later are going to be kind of around this, but uh, a lot of like the the Trumpers and not necessarily the Republicans who happen to vote Trump, but like the Trumpers, their devotion and like some of the things that they say and believe really creeped me out. And to be more controversial on the flip side, yeah, there is a lot of the very liberal side of things where it's not cancel culture and like the way that some of the right throws it out, but it's the, oh, you didn't say the phrase exactly the way that I said it. So even if you mean similar things, you're out. And that kind of exclusionary attitude also creeps me out a little bit. I'm like, ah, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I did want to briefly cover. Well, what Brandon, you know, Brandon's short, you know, truncated input on the topic was. Um, he recommended us a few documentaries to check out. Uh, he wants us to watch Q Into the Storm, which is about Q and on, I assume. He didn't, you know, describe it, but I'm pretty sure that's about Q and on. Uh, the Secrets of Hillsong, The Way Down, and Stolen Innocence. Uh, Q, Hillsong, and Way Down all deal with cults or cult mentalities of the church. Uh, Stolen Innocence is actually about a current cult that just got brought down. And, you know, this year is the 30th anniversary of Waco. Woo, let's go, Dave Koresh. Um, but if you actually, Waco is super interesting. If you don't know about it, Netflix just recently released a new uh, Waco miniseries. It's like four episodes. Uh, if you weren't alive for Waco, like I wasn't, and like Christian, were you? I don't know. But it's a good watch. It's I'm really 1990. Okay, hmm. so you were there barely. Yeah. Also, right there happy on shiny the people. Happy shiny people on um, Prime right now. So super popular, and it's um, a lot more of the purity culture kind of stuff that uh, a lot of our listeners are probably more familiar with. Kind of touch on that, and some of the umbrella stuff that you use kind of goes to like where did that come from, and you realize oh that did not come from a great place. <laughs> yeah. 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 So there's a there's a lot of documentaries out there about cults. If you're more interested, uh, plenty of room to research. So with such a medium crowd today, uh, we are going to do a roundtable roundup. Uh, I'm going to read out four questions so everyone knows what they are. Pay attention. Uh, I will go back one at a time and each of you can answer one, one of the four questions. Uh, you must repeat the question you are answering. Uh, no one can respond or ask follow-up questions until after the roundup is complete, which means we might have one or three uh, questions that don't get answered, uh, depending on your choices. Uh, Joshua and I will also be participating. Joshua will be going first. So the questions are, A, should the church treat cults any differently than other religions or with more vitriol uh, for how they're deceiving others? B, how can I know whether I'm being brainwashed and in a cult or if I'm in a more healthy faith community? C is how have churches become cults in the past and how do we keep our churches from that today? 
And D is why are so many people in our churches obsessed with documentaries and podcasts about cults and or true crime and or serial killers? So, Joshua, what question would you like to answer? So I'm going to go with a B. How can I know whether I am brainwashed and in a cult or whether I am in a more healthy faith community? Um, I was brainwashed after my accident. They cut my head open and actually physically had to wash my brain out. That's how I know. That's my answer. No. Um, also, that thing I said earlier of um, do they allow for other people to disagree with them well? Look for disagreement and unity together. As the church unity guy, I feel like that's just the one I needed to answer. So. All right. Um, Christian, which, which question would you like to answer? Uh, I'll take why are so many people in our churches obsessed with documentaries and podcasts about cults and or true crime and or serial killers. As someone who is obsessed with all that, uh, I believe I'm qualified for this answer. <laughs> uh, part of it is to me, as someone who is fascinated with how other people think, because it is so antithetical to everything about me, and it's a very egotistical person, it's like, how could that be possible? How could you not be like me? No, uh, it's more what brought these people to the point where they started a cult or they what was it that happened in their lives where they went after these women to murder them and so on and so forth? Like, and why didn't that happen to me? Why didn't that happen to the people around me? As it's just utterly fascinating to see like what could have been done to prevent these things. Like uh, we t I talked about people's temple earlier. It's like, it starts off extremely well in the community, looking after people starting to foster racial unity among everyone. But as time went on, pride struck in, greed struck in and a, a sense of wanting to get away from the world that wanted to do all these things that they didn't agree with to them came in. So they decided to do their own thing. And as a result of that, was it 900 some people died? Or I'd have to look that statistic up again. It's like, how far would I have gone in that situation after having served in a church that was doing all these good things? Would I have gone with them? Would I have realized and not gone that way? That's stuff yeah. that fascinates me. And that's why I keep going to stuff like this. So I can try and learn as someone who's not it's not easy for me to understand other people try and get in their shoes. So if something were to show up my way, I'm at least somewhat prepared to talk to someone. Hmm. Right. So yeah, it's a good answer. I like that. Uh, me personally, I'm going to go with the, how, tr how have churches become cults in the past and how do we keep our churches from that today? Uh, I think generally what tends to happen for a church to become a cult is the church builds itself around a person instead of God. Uh, and then, you know, the church, that guy just starts to get his own ideas is, you know, what if, what can I convince them? What can I get away with? Uh, you know, can I get them to take their kids out of school? Can I get them to move to where I want them to go? And uh, that's the kind of thing we have to look out for. Uh, if your pastor says something that contradicts the Bible, and someone calls him out on it, and he's like, uh, no, you're wrong, actually. Uh, you know, instead of actually just talking about it, because, you know, maybe it doesn't. Maybe he read it differently. Maybe he read it wrong. You know, it's his job to know that he's not reading it wrong. But it's possible. It can happen. People make mistakes. Um, if generally you're just not allowed to speak ill of the pastor, or not necessarily the pastor, could be anybody, 
But generally speaking, whoever you're not allowed to talk ill about uh, is the person in charge. And uh, above reproach, nobody is above reproach. Mm. So watch out that uh, you aren't following a man instead of God. If mm. your church would completely crumble if one person left, other than like an administrator who act, like pays the bills and stuff, like the actual <laughs> person running the church, uh, that's probably a bad sign. Mm. Be cautious. Just Man. watch out. Mm. That was good stuff, DJ. Thanks. So, yeah, Nathan. This podcast doesn't revolve around DJ. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll round out the quartet and, and take the first one. Uh, you know, should the church treat cults any differently than other religions or with more vitriol for how they're deceiving others? And, you know, I'm, I'm going to call back to, you know, my early discussion of the, the history of the term and say that the church should be careful about that noun cult in the modern sense, because, again, cult in the modern sense means excessive and deviant. And, you know, one of the things that uh, is an impossible situation uh, and, you know, of course, you know, you, you know, I'm a Protestant, so it's going to work itself around to all things are possible with God. So just wait for it. But uh, there is an impossible straight to navigate between on one side becoming so much like the dominant culture that you become irrelevant and on the other side becoming so excessive and so deviant that you get called a cult. And, you know, when we see groups that are functionally identical with the dominant culture, uh, you know, our temptation is to say, well, look at us. We're not as uh, conformist as they are. And likewise, when we see a group that is excessive and deviant compared to us, uh, our temptation is to say, oh, look, a cult. I'm glad we're not like them. And, uh, you know, my since this is supposed to be a lightning round, I've already like violated the meteorological metaphor. I'll just say that, uh, you know, the people who prayed to God, I thank you that I'm not like them. They don't turn out well in the New Testament. Hmm. I'm just going to put out the open call there for uh, any that's not I was about to say recitations. That's not right. Um, any disagreements with anybody else? Any responses? Any additions to their question or another question? Speak now, forever hold your peace. Okay, Josh. I'm just going to add uh, to Christian's thing because, you know, naturally his answer seemed pretty similar to mine of like, <laughs> is there room for disagreement? Uh, which also TJ's answer. A lot of our answers were pretty similar to different questions. But when we were watching the shiny happy people at home with our friend, um, I complain because I don't like these. I find them boring. And then I like most documentaries I find boring unless they're just really well done. And then stuff about serial killers and like cults. I'm like, hey, this kind of seems negative. I could watch something happier. I definitely feel way happier when I watch Indiana Jones for a hundredth time this week. You know, like, why wouldn't I just do that? But I was reminded that part of how you keep yourself from these things is to know more about them. So. That is where documentaries can be a good thing, even if they're yeah. incredibly boring. And I could have just read a book. Yeah. yeah, Right. And and one virtue of documentaries is that they do pay attention to the details. They pay attention to the verbs. Right. Uh, you know, I, I've not watched these documentaries, but I'm going to I'm going to hazard a guess here that they don't spend a whole lot of their hours discussing whether or not something is a cult. They are more focused on what these people are actually doing concretely day to day, hour to hour, month to month. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And side note, because I haven't told DJ this yet, and he'll just probably enjoy it. Um, the, Heine, the Happy Shiny People uh, documentary that I mentioned, 
Kristen Kubez Dume, friend of the show, former guest, is a pretty prominent role in that as far as like providing some of the information. So that was pretty cool. cool. Yeah. 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 She had a lot of screen time. And when she first popped up, I was like, that's my friend. <laughs> yeah. I was happy. <laughs> If you just want to watch a good documentary, I always recommend Blackfish. That's a documentary. It's about killer whales. It's about 50% incorrect for everybody wondering. Yeah. But it is pretty entertaining. Good production value, though. That's true. Don't go there and learn about killer whales. I, I was going to say, are, are we going to relitigate Facebook in 2016? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So then let's ask if the church is different than a gold. Why do so many cults that we hear about and that we've talked about today come from churches? Christian. One of the greatest things and one of the worst things to ever come from the Protestant Reformation was bringing the Bible to the common man in that we can all read scripture now. We don't have to wait for a priest to deliver it to us in Latin and whatever language we also have on Sunday. We can pick it up if we're literate, which I hope we are, read it. ask questions about what it is, then go to someone who knows more, ask them, ask someone else. That is a great thing when it comes to our faith. It becomes a terrible thing when anybody can pick it up, like a couple of verses and say, I agree with this, don't care about the rest of that. And then I'm going to add on to it what I think should be done. I should be able to have all these wives. I should be able to have all this money and this power and this influence. You know, and like I said, it's one of the greatest things that happened, one of the worst things that happened, because I mean, not to say cults didn't exist before the Protestant Reformation within the church, but not as many because the Bible is more widespread. So you're going to see people who grew up in church and didn't have good teaching. You're going to see people who grew up in church and disagreed with something and then saying, well, I'm going to start my own uh, and do it this way. So that's one of the reasons, one of the major reasons. I say man is bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A controversial take. (laughs) About half of the time, at least. And uh, churches Mm -hmm, are a fairly easy way to get power and influence. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just to add add to what TJ is saying, I mean, you know, uh, when a community is dedicated to something superhuman, uh, you know, the rhetoric of that community becomes superhumanly powerful, right? So, I mean, you know, to move it away from uh, churches, mosques, and temples, uh, you know, I mean, when someone can convince a group of people that, you know, what we are doing is not my agenda, but it is for America, then, you know, I mean, it becomes more powerful than, it, than if it were merely uh, do this because I say so. And likewise, I mean, you know, when we attach it to uh, the eternal and to the infinite, then rhetorically, uh, it takes on a power that is far greater than the personality of any person. And if we combine that eternal rhetoric with a genuinely powerful personality, uh, then yeah, I mean, we get communities that do dangerous things. And, you know, once again, you hear me avoiding the noun cult, uh, because again, I mean, what I'm mainly concerned with is examining the particulars. What kinds of words are people speaking? What kinds of things are people doing? What kinds of practices shape a community, right? Uh, and so, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm probably a little bit more optimistic about most of humanity than TJ is, uh, and that's okay because, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> affiliated with a group called yeah. the Christian Humanist Radio Network, so, I mean, I should probably be optimistic about human beings. But I will say that, I mean, you know, the 
the great power of words and the great power of ideas uh, can build and it can destroy. Uh, you know, that doesn't deny either one of those, but it does pay to keep both of them in view. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of your positivity towards humanity, uh, just for those watching and listening, because I, I find it particularly entertaining. I thought about this earlier. Uh, when I met Nathan, me and him were the extreme conservatives of a group. Now, I don't think anyone would have called us extremes, but we were the conservatives of, of that, that's um, theology. Me every every yeah. trip there's events, yes. And I was just thinking this here, and I'm like, man, now I'm sad because Nathan's the liberal of this. You know, like it's oh, like, oh, now he's the progressive one. Well, he's I, the I, universalist. I, the, yeah, that, the funny thing is, Josh, is that, you know, I, I was a professor, you know, for 14 years at an evangelical liberal, liberal. arts college. And I was one of the, you know, transgressive <laughs> left English professors until yeah, the day that yeah. I showed up at a given theology beer camp. And then I became the conservative. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I'm there to just be on the right side of you, which is great because Christian's over here like Josh is on the right side of someone. <laughs> yeah. Crazy how I like say, where, where did you where was this at yeah. San Francisco? Like I know where it actually was but like for you two. Wow. I just thought it was pretty. No, I don't funny, mean that though. derogatorily. Yeah. I swear, <laughs> just really amusing though. Uh, and we've had the leader of said camp, Trip Fuller, has been on the show before, and I think he's coming back on soon. But I'm unsure, so I didn't. Want oh to yeah, yeah. And I, I, I mean, Trip is a then. dear friend. <laughs> Love that but guy. I mean, he's awesome. One, one of the one of the many funny things about Trip Fuller, and he's a dear friend of mine. Like I said, is that sometimes, and I can tell that he's been hanging out with, uh, you know, fellow progressives recently. Uh, is that he will start monologuing and he'll start referring to himself as the conservative in this or that circle. And I'm thinking, oh, Trip, that is a small <laughs> circle. Chief. That is a small circle. Yep. Wow. Yep. Spectrums are funny. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> the church is called to Christian unity. According to Romans, it is also called to have peace with all men. Now, uh, some of the people who do end up in these cults uh, – might truly believe in Jesus and be saved uh, simply following the wrong man. Uh, now, where do we find the balance in trying to help these people, trying to tell you know the others that they need help, and having peace with the men who initiate these movements? I think it's learning what love is and how to apply love well. Love is not just, hey, man, it's okay, whatever you're doing, that's fine. You'll get out of this one day. Love sometimes done well is correction. Sometimes done well. Part of, you know, we get Jesus teaching us how to judge, like get rid of the log in your own eye before we start worrying about the speck in our brother. We may not look at that speck. That's a cult. I mean, obviously that's awful. Like, well, it looks like a log to us, but what am I wrestling with right now? That if he brings it up or she brings it up in that conversation could make one additional hurdle for me to jump over and if I don't deal with that first, I'm not coming out of this conversation well, and I'm not possibly not even going to be talking to them in a loving manner to get them to understand, like, look, I am seeing these things about where you're at. Let's talk about that. Let's get away from it for a moment so that you don't remain in this darkness. I like that. I like that. Nathan. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I would uh, go back to is, you know, I mean, just some linguistic reflections, right? So, I mean, you know, the Greek soteria, the uh, Latin sawatio, uh, which gets translated in modern English into salvation. Um, one of the things that I try to encourage when I teach in churches and other contexts 
is to think about them as living realities that continue after we die. Uh, and, you know, that requires some philosophical reflection because then we really have to think about what sorts of things constitute good human life. And I don't, I don't exclusively mean individual life. I also mean community life. Uh, so, I mean, you know, um, to, to utter a phrase I never thought I'd say on a theology po- podcast, to go back to Loki, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> if in a community, uh, you know, uh, liberty, freedom is something that, you know, people are trying to save you from, I mean, you need to have the philosophical courage to ask, you know, is freedom something that is good for human beings? And if your answer is yes, then you can't just say we'll have freedom after we all die. You have to say, what does freedom look like in the conditions of the world that we inhabit while we are living right Mm -hmm. now? I mean, you know, just to show that my optimism is not without bounds, I, I do confess that the world that we inhabit has fallen from the goodness that God intends for it. And therefore, I mean, you know, there are structures, there are institutions, uh, there are uh, limitations that we put on ourselves as, commu- as communities uh, that won't be necessary in the age to come in which our freedom uh, is not fallen into sin. But while it still is, you know, and I mean, it's, it's funny because I'm, I'm sounding like an 18th century liberal here. Uh, but, you know, we cannot govern ourselves as if we are angels. That's, um, oh, goodness, is that Madison? That's one of the Federalist paper dudes. Uh, Federalist 10 listeners, go read it. It's awesome. But, um, you know, we have to give genuine thought to circle back to what I was starting to say to what good human community looks like so that our picture of salvation uh, really does remain a living reality that continues after we die. Yeah. Uh, Nathan, I think maybe you should watch Attack on Titan or read it. I think you'd get a lot out of that story. Okay. So tell me just a little bit about it. Give me a taste of it so that I'll I'll go and seek it out. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's one of those new fancy anime that uh, kids like to watch these days. Uh, <laughs> basically. So in other words, my son's probably already seen it. Oh, he yeah, is. We may definitely. be doing an episode on it later on for Systematic Geekology. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, dude, born in a horrible world where giant people eat everybody, and uh, I don't really want to say anything else. Every, I feel like saying anything else at this That's point. That's quite is a, a setup. So, I, yeah, I'm I'm interested now. So, thank you for yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of political nonsense. It's great. It does get. It does get. Yeah. Pretty pretty much there. Yeah. yeah. I um I saw and finished it, but I just I really appreciate how near the beginning of this podcast we were talking about Loki and Nathan was condemning nationalism. And then near the end, we're talking about anime and Nathan is quoting Madison in the Federalist Papers. <laughs> but, yeah, do I contradict said, myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. Uh, I contain uh, multitudes. I contain multitudes. That was just entertaining stuff there. But I, um, no, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm about to use a cheesy youth pastor metaphor. I'm, I'm going to become famous for these one day. Just you won't. I will be that that stereotypical cheesy youth pastor one day. Um, but the uh, <laughs> I think of well, first let me go to some logic stuff. If you want good reasoning, typically if you take all of your arguments to the extreme or the hyperbole, you can really find some good flaws and what actually works. 
And I think that's one good thing of looking at how we minister to people in cults or cults themselves, because we're taking it to the extreme. That is the extreme. And that's where a lot of my philosophy of ministry is a lot like, the, you know, the those annoying Chinese finger traps or, or the Japanese or Chinese finger trap. I've always so heard them called Chinese. Chinese. Is that right? OK. I don't think they're probably not even Chinese. But anyway, when you pull against your logic, you're yelling, you're labeling it a cult, you're whatever. You just get more trapped. You're not helping the person. They just become more stuck on where they're at because they feel like they have to defend themselves because you're attacking them. When you come close to someone, you learn about what they believe. You love them more. You get close to where they're at. That's when the finger trap lets go, right? When you push the fingers together. And, you know, I think the same thing with ministry is like when we come closer, we have a tendency to do a better job of preaching that verse, um, preaching the actual gospel. You know, Christ came to set us free and those whom the sun set free are free indeed. Um, It is (laughs) – sorry. It is for freedom that Christ came, right? Therefore, don't fall again into slavery. Don't fall again into sin or the law. Like all of these Bible verses, my favorite Bible verses tends to be the freedom ones. I'm very American, it turns out. But, <laughs> but you know, they, like if you want someone to be set free, you don't attack where they're at. They build up their defense. You come closer to them and that's when they can get free of the trap. So I think coming closer and loving better is what the church should do. The more trapped a person is, the more you should love them, I think. So with that, if that's it for now, <laughs> We will go to the last question. We always ask everybody, if you had to provide a single tangible action that would help engender church unity, what is one practical thing you would ask them to do? And this time, I'm going to throw it to Christian first. Let's specifically, how can people in the church love those who feel trapped better? Because a lot of times that is in Christian environments where they feel trapped. Hmm. How can they love? Okay. But recognizing that even though they're loving this person, even though they're praying for this person, there may come a day where they still don't believe you, no matter how logical your arguments are, no matter how you're destroying the ideas of whatever group they're in, this new cult idea, what have you, it's a possibility that there's failure, but it's not your fault that there's a failure. This is whatever God is having them wrestle with in their own time there. We don't control them, and that's a good thing, because then we're guilty of what we're trying to protect them from. Mm. All right. Um, let's do TJ next. That sounds fun. Hey, TJ, what's what's your practical action for loving people who are trapped better or feel trapped? Yeah, that's how be, be kind, be compassionate. Uh, you have to be willing to help, and you have to be willing to let them know that you are there to help. I like physically making yourself available. I think that's yeah. a big thing. Not just telling them I'm there for you. Like, show up sometimes. Yeah. You have to put in the effort. It's a two-way street. Like most streets. Yeah. Good streets. Not Chapel Hill streets. Sorry, Will. Nathan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for people who feel trapped, I mean, one of the practices that I've found most helpful when I've when I've had conversations with folks on that particular matter is thinking through things in terms of stories. And here's what I mean by that, uh, you know, thinking of ourselves as uh, not necessarily just being able to throw a switch between trapped and free, but living in a complex narrative uh, in which, you know, there are all kinds of traps uh, and, you know, some of them are diametrically opposed to each other and freedom is not a destination at which we arrive, but it is something that emerges moment to moment. 
So, I mean, you know, I mean, that, that, you know, hopefully that resonates, you know, both with theological and with psychological counseling vocabularies. But, you know, just the idea that human existence uh, opens up to us from moment to moment. And when we try to keep it from opening up from moment to moment, that's when we tend either to trap ourselves or to grab onto whatever bait is waiting in the next trap. And that, that's really probably ex- too philosophical to be concrete, and I apologize, but that's where my brain goes sometimes. Yeah, I get that. No, I am. Uh, I'm just really excited that uh, I get to be the one that um, brought up the topic for next the next round table because it's always it's usually it has a tendency to be like Nathan or the, the professors who opens a new can of worms right near the end. But this time, I'm like, oh man, yeah, traps. That's perfect because. You know, we think of cults, but that's not the only trap pastors fall into. It's not the only traps churches fall into or people in churches feel like they're stuck in is not just because it's a cult. There are other traps. So come back next time. We'll talk about traps. <laughs> it's a trap. That'll just be <laughs> General Akbar. It'll be like the photo. There's going to be a Mon Calamari involved. <laughs> <laughs> Has to be. Has to be. Oh, uh, well. So. TJ went and took a restroom break, so I guess I'll ask his next question. What would be the repercussions in the world around us if everybody did what you guys just said? So, Christian, <laughs> people are making themselves more available. They're being kind to all the things that we all mentioned. What do you think would change? I think one of the things I've been learning recently is that what looks like failure to me in that I didn't win that person over to my side isn't always a failure because... For all I know, I planted the seed and a year down the road, five, 10, 20, someday it clicks. And like, I want them Mm. to do it the moment I say it, but I don't (laughs) control the world. Yeah. And that would be a very terrible place to be. (laughs) You think Dr. Doom is a dictator? I'll be 10 times as worse. It's like, you don't want me as your leader. You want God. At least Latveria is like actually nice. (laughs) He's actually good at what he does. He's just... A little but, evil on the side. Yeah, don't, don't get me discoursing on Hickman's secret wars, please. <laughs> so, I'm about to meet Hickman in like two days. Also, oh, uh, right. while, oh, honest, uh, dog. while this episode is slowly becoming systematic ecology, I want to do my quick recommendation. Um, there's an ep- there's a comic series of where Doctor Doom and Doctor Strange met. It's it's an older one, totally worth it. They fight Mephisto, and it's really fun to watch Doctor Strange be kind of confused and in awe when he goes to Latveria and realizes, yeah, no, Dr. Doom runs a really nice country. He does a great job. His people are happy. He does, yeah. Uh, yeah. And if we're just doing recommendations for nerds now, since this is systematic <laughs> ecology, I've been reading Planet Hulk again lately. Great run. Hmm. I love Planet Hulk. Nice. I also have the Treasury Edition of you had yours. Black, White, and Blood. <laughs> I'm about right. to get it signed by Hickman, though. I'm trying to get caught up to DC if I guess we're doing recommendations right now, <laughs> since I know nothing about current DC. And a friend of mine on Twitter gave me a list of like the War World uh, arc that Superman and Action Comics has been going through, and I'm really enjoying that. Interesting. All right, Nathan, what's your uh, recommendation for this episode of Systematic Ecology? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> this is a quiz for which I did not study, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on that one. And uh, oh. instead... Uh, talk about implications of the concrete recommendations, right? And, uh, you know, one of the things that Thank you. comes from <laughs> kindness and, you know, comes from presence uh, is that, you know, and, and, you know, I'll kind of, I'll tie it into mine as well, uh, is that 
again, if we don't try to, um, if we don't try to lock things down, if we don't try to keep things from changing, uh, then, I mean, there is a certain kind of humility, not one that says there's nothing to be known and we can't know anything, but a kind of humility that says there are still things to learn and I'm looking forward to learning them uh, that emerges in that kind of context. So, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, really the, the concrete things that all of us recommended uh, kind of lead to that kind of humility that I can basically sign on to. That's not a uh, dogmatic skepticism, but it is an openness to what is new. Yeah. yeah. Since, since Nathan wouldn't do it, I will recommend uh, the episodes he's been on for Across the Bifrost, or talking about the <laughs> Simonson run of Thor. They've been really, really well done and very enjoyable. I, Thank you I so much, Christian. Yeah. yeah. Also, yeah. shout out to Anytime, Ryan Lewis. Man. We love that guy. We love that guy. Yeah. Uh, so we do like to start wrapping up with our God moment. You've all done one now. Uh, if this is your first episode, you picked a, probably the longest one. Congratulations. <laughs> um, but we like to ask everyone uh, for a moment in their lives recently where they saw God, whether that be a moment of worship, a challenge, a blessing, a curse. Uh, it could be anything. Uh, I always ask Joshua to go first, and by ask, I mean force. Joshua will be going first to give myself and our esteemed guests as much time as they need to think about their God moment for the week. So, Joshua, do you have a God moment for us? Uh, yeah, a family member was in the hospital last week, um, final surgery for removing cancer. So that was pretty, pretty huge, pretty big deal. Um, and for those who know any of my story, know that I, I kind of have a little bit of PTSD around hospitals. So I spent a large portion of my day in a hospital freaking out and um, God gave me the strength to exist there and not uh, outwardly freak out the whole time. Yeah. yeah. So that's a blessing. Yeah. Congratulations. Double uh, blessing. Yeah. For me, uh, my God moment is uh, always a simple one. Uh, God is in all things. God's in little things. Uh, extra little one. I saw a rainbow through a, what do they call it? The peephole on a door. Is it a peephole? Is that what it's called? Yes. I, yeah, that is the I name. I don't know of why. It. <laughs> I'm thinking it's like a periscope. Is I think is the other word I was thinking about. The door periscope. Yeah, that, that's on a submarine. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no way you remember this, but I have to point it out for listeners. On our live episode where we talk about how and where we experience God and we talk about what kind of moments we think of as yeah, God moments. That. Yeah, that was one of your your examples. Yeah, I saw another I think one. It's great that that actually happened. So, <laughs> Uh, I saw another one of those, but, uh, the other day I had a hankering for grandma's chili and instead Mm. of going to Mima's house and asking for chili and hot dogs, uh, I decided that I would call her, uh, ask for the recipe. Horrible idea. Don't, uh, don't ever do that. Don't ask somebody, uh, an older person who cooks for their recipe. They probably don't have one that vague measurements at best. Um, yeah, but it's nice to, I mean, I see her all the time, so it's not like it's nice to catch up, but it, it's nice to be humbled so strongly uh, <laughs> in that I can do everything that I'm supposed to do, uh, but if I'm not doing it the right way, I don't know exactly what goes into it, uh, it won't turn out right. I think it's a, a good metaphor for lots of things, yeah. um, but you just kind of got to figure it out sometimes or have exact yeah. directions, <laughs> which is not yeah. common. In life. Uh, so that's going to be it for me. Because it's a bit of a challenge. 
self-reflection. Cook your grandma's chili better. <laughs> yeah, was not that good. That's fair. <laughs> I apply it to larger things. So, yeah. uh, Nathan, do you have a God moment for us? Yeah, I'm actually going to go triple barrel because I've had a, a good month. Uh, uh, on, I'll just say the last weekend of May, uh, my son graduated high school. So that was a very cool milestone. And my parents and my brother flew in uh, for that graduation. And that was on Saturday night. Uh, the second barrel, uh, the next morning at church, uh, my son and daughter were both baptized. So that was a very huge moment. Uh, and of course, you know, we had our family from Indiana and California there along with our worship community here in Georgia. So that was just a really awesome uh, day. Uh, and then the third one is a, is a more private one. Uh, I recently uh, reread uh, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And one of the things that I enjoy in life is discovering that the really good books are completely different uh, as I get older. And, uh, you know, I first read that book when I was a, a, I'm trying to do the math here, a 23-year-old seminary student. And, uh, you know, now I'm a 46-year-old, you know, teacher. And, you know, just seeing things in that book that never would have occurred to me when I was 23 has been a pretty big joy. Hmm. Have you ever read uh, The Bird King by G. Willow Wilson? I have not. Tell me about it. You should read it. It's a it's a story. Um, basically, it involves a gin as well as a princess. Right when it's uh, you know British British Empire is kind of taking over. It's the Spanish Inquisition time frame. Kingdom's about to get taken over. Lady Jin and person who's able to make maps where when he makes them, paths just appear. Super cool. A lot of good magic. A lot of good like fictional history stuff. And she's just such an incredible writer. Very good. Yeah. Brothers Karamazov doesn't have any of that. It's largely atheism, murder, (laughs) and, you know, Russians. That was my favorite part of Dostoevsky when the djinn showed up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Just read better. (laughs) It's like Pan's Labyrinth, but for for slightly younger people. That's how I think about it. So, Christian, do you have a God moment for us? I have several as well, because I love cheating when this is brought up. But I got to go back home. Uh, for the weekend and was able to have an hour or so with my uh, pastor and his wife and just uh, chit chat and uh, see where everyone's going. Cause he, I think I've announced to you before that he is stepping down uh, of his own choice to, to just pursue life beyond being a pastor right now to hang out with his grandchildren and stuff like that. This man's been a mentor. He's been fantastic. uh, A dad. Uh, She's been a second mom to me. So I've, just to see where they were and where they are now is a really good. And speaking of that, like while I was also down, my brother was down for a wedding and while we were spinning up the night, just talking to each other, we brought our old high school yearbooks and we were comparing stories and stuff like that. And it just, it was that moment of, wow, God has brought me a very long way from when I was 18 <laughs> to now. And I'm very appreciative of that. And my last one, I swear is that in Three-ish weeks, my little niece or nephew is going to appear in this world. We're going to have a good time. I'm going to be in Chicago celebrating with them. So I am, I'm hyped for that. I'm so ready. I'm still on team niece, even though the ultrasounds kind of look like a boy. It's, it's irking me, but I guess I still, <laughs> I still love this child, this first grandbaby of my parents. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to my brother having kids too. <laughs> yeah. 
also super close. Uh, so if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend, sharing it with an enemy, or sharing it with a cousin. You can yeah. do all three if you're blessed enough to have all three. Yeah, especially uh, cousins. We like yeah. them most. Yeah. Uh, you also can get the merch for the whole church to support the show. It's in the show notes. Click the link. There's some good yeah, stuff in there. Uh, and if you're listening on Captivate, uh, consider leaving us a one-time tip. We yeah, like money. Pretty we need nice. money. Yeah. Not to be greedy. Not to get our table flipped, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Consider it. But, you know, the show costs money. It helps. Um, also, there are other shows that cost money. You could check out on Anna's Al <laughs> Ministries Podcast Network. That show note... That link is also in the show notes. It's just a website of all the podcasts, part of the AMP network, including Christians, Let Nothing Move You, including Brandon's, My Seminary Life, my other one, Dummy for Theology, that I'm behind on. It's a good time, especially when I catch up. Yeah. Right. We hope you enjoyed it. Come back next week where we'll be joining the one and only NKCF. Did I mess that up? Whatever. The Christian NKCF. Ashley. Uh, Dr. Thomas Ord and Alexa Ord to discuss how Christians might be able to disagree about theology of LGBT issues and still do works of love for the community together. After that, we'll be joined by some of the other hosts of Systematic Ecology, which if you've never heard of, uh, I guess you skipped this part. Then. Uh, yeah, Christians in that too. <laughs> also, with the one and only in KCF. Yeah, we're keeping it nasty. Uh, we're going to talk about what it's like to work with other Christians whom we often disagree with. Uh, and finally, at the end of season one, Francis Chan will be joining us. He doesn't know that, but he'll, yeah. he'll figure it out. Behold, Francis, we stand at the door and knock. Maybe and we Francis keep Chan just disagrees with us a lot more than <laughs> most people. Who knows? Possible. Maybe I'm really lazy about reaching out to him. Maybe we haven't even tried yet. <laughs> Who knows? Thank you for listening to the whole church podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, you can always sponsor our show at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast.